Well, I'd like to pray with you for a moment together as we look into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we pause now in these moments, and we are grateful for your love for us, grateful that you give direction in our life, grateful for the Word of God. So we would invite you now by your Spirit to speak truth, to speak in a way that brings honor to you, to speak in a way that is very personal to us. And so we're open to that, we're looking for that, and we invite you to do it now. In Jesus' name, amen. How come? How come is a way we often begin our questions, don't we? So let me throw a question out there for you that perhaps from time to time you wrestle with. How come I don't always feel God's presence? How come I don't feel close to God at times? Am I the only one that feels this way? Am I the only one that wrestles with this? Let me tell you, this is a very common thing. Not only now, but certainly in the days when the scriptures were written. Let me read to you a couple of verses that illuminate that. So from, I won't get you to turn there, but in Psalm 88, beginning in verse 13, the psalmist writes, I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why or how come, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? We're not the only ones that at times feel like we can't sense or feel God's presence. If you were to read that whole Psalm 88, you're going to hear a guy talking about quite openly, where are you, God, when I need you? I don't get it. I don't sense that you're near. The thing about Psalms like that and a number of other ones like that is that I notice that God never gets after them as they ask their question. He allows them to process what they're really feeling, because he already knows what they're really feeling. They come to a place of trust by the end, but he allows them to openly ask their questions. And so the guy says, I don't sense that you're near. I want you to be reminded that feelings are not a bad thing. They actually can be quite supportive of that which is true. We see this in the life of Jesus quite frequently, where he would express strong emotion and strong feelings in support of that which is true. And he would, for example, cry at the loss of his friend Lazarus when he died. He cried when he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he knew prophetically what, because he was a, the spirit-filled God-man, he knew that in 70 AD the Romans were going to come and sack the city. He cried at those things. He was disappointed with his disciples and would be frustrated with them at points. He was overwhelmed when he was in the garden, and I could go on. He exhibited strong feelings and emotions. How come I don't always feel God's presence? There's a number of biblical possibilities for this, and I want to go through a number of them with you quickly today and just kind of move around in the scripture a little bit and say, why is it that at times I don't feel or sense God's presence? Having said that, it's entirely possible. I won't be able to say or address specifically for every person here exactly how come. 
but let's, have a, let's take some time in God's word to look at a number of possibilities. The first one might be that we're expecting, for lack of a better term, a massive sign from God. And we're thinking in our head that if God doesn't do something that I consider dramatic and huge, that he's not involved and that he's a deistic, distant God. A deist is one that creates it and then just stays way far away, not involved. And we're thinking unless he does something really dramatic in our life and huge in our life, that he's not involved and he's distant. So let's look at a passage of scripture that illustrates this. Let's turn to the book of John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. And I'm not going to read the entire story here. You can read the context of these stories. I encourage you to do that. We don't have time to read them all. But let's begin in John chapter 6, verse 28. John chapter 6, verse 28. And Jesus has been speaking with them in John chapter 6 about this idea of the bread of life. And they're confused. Is he talking about real bread? Is there some symbolism going on here? And so they're having a dialogue with Jesus. And they say to him in verse 28, they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And they ask the question that's on the lips, I think in one way or another, or one time or another, of every human being. How, what do I have to do to connect with whatever it is that's out there? What kind of works do I have to take on to connect with God? And this is the approach of every religion and every philosophy in the world. What kinds of things do I have to do to connect with that which I want to connect with. And Jesus is going to say something, as you hear me say over and over again, that flies directly in the face of this kind of thinking. He responds to them and he says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now this overloads their brain circuit. They don't get it at all. This flies in the face of everything they've always heard their entire life. And it does not make sense to them. And so they say to him in verse 30, verse 30, they say, and you can tell they're coming from a place of, I don't know if I understand this guy or where he's come from. So they ask him, what miraculous sign will you then give me that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And what they're saying to Jesus is, impress me, Jesus. Knock my socks off, and maybe I will consider believing in you. If you're going to invite me to approach God in a way that's so outside of what I've always thought, you're going to have to blow me away and impress me with something dramatic. Jesus says to them, our forefathers ate, they, they continue, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus responded to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on then, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is saying to them, look, it doesn't come as a result of this big dramatic thing that you're 
pushing me to do. It begins with believing in him. It begins with believing in him. A belief that is life-changing. It's not just a, I'm going to check off the box and say I believe there's a God. That's, that's a good thing, but it's sort of ultimately an empty thing if it doesn't go beyond that. No, it results, and biblical belief always results in a life being changed. So these guys say, Jesus, we don't get what you're saying. You're going to have to impress us and blow our socks off if we're even going to consider believing. And sometimes we can be like this with God, can't we? We say that we don't really sense him being close to us. And really what we're saying is, you need to impress me with your presence. Or I'm not buying in. Now, is God still in the business of doing those kinds of things? Absolutely. He absolutely does. He, at times, will just knock us over with his presence and his supernatural actions. He can heal people. He can do all kinds of what we would consider very dramatic things. He's the same God that we read about in Scripture, the same God that we read about in the pages of church history, if you've read those. And so we sometimes try to demand this from God. And we think if he hasn't done it, that he's not really there. Or on the other side of the equation, we might miss his presence because we've got this wrong thinking in our head that our God never does things in the supernatural and doesn't anymore or operate in that sphere anymore. And we've wrongly believed something that's certainly not true from Scripture. And so when we see God do something supernatural or something that's outside of what makes us comfortable, we tend to discount it and we miss his presence and his closeness. Or as I said, on the other side, we begin to make demands of him and we say, I want to play small g God and I'm going to dictate to you how you're going to impress me like the people in John chapter 6. And sometimes as he does in scripture. Sometimes he just rocks us back. And sometimes he just calmly gives us a peace beyond human understanding. Where am I putting my belief in? It all begins with that. Another reason, perhaps one of the most common ones, is that I'm just distracted. And I'm blaming God that I don't feel close to him or I don't sense his presence because I'm just distracted with all kinds of different things. And I'm missing, clearly missing the reality that God is really involved in my life. And I'm missing this because I'm preoccupied. And we think that God is not close, but actually he is. Actually, he's deeply engaged in our life, but we are distracted. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to see an illustration of that. Luke chapter 10, well-known story, beginning in verse 38. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to them. So Jesus and his leadership team go in to this lady's house, people that they know. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all of the preparations that had to be made. So she was doing things that had to be made, done, but she was distracted. 
She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Jesus answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Here's what's most important, Martha. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha's not doing anything wrong, per se. She's working at things that at least at some point need to be done. She has all this company in their home. They need to feed them at some point, but not at this point. And by doing this, being preoccupied and worried with this, she's missing the presence of Jesus. And Mary said, yeah, we'll get them a meal, but we'll, we'll do it later. Right now, Jesus is here and he's engaged with this, us, and I'm going to sit at his feet and I'm going to drink in that relationship with him. And Martha misses enjoying the presence of Jesus. This happened to me just in the last two weeks. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, myself and another pastor, this pastor's not from this church, and the third person I'm going to mention is not from this church at all, but myself and this other pastor were faced with a very serious issue that needed to be addressed, and it is a big deal, and we needed to get at this. And I was jumping in with both feet like I contend to do. This needs to get done. It needs to get done now. But then this pastor friend of mine sent me a text. It was fairly lengthy. I'm just going to read parts of it to you. The text that God had spoken to him early in the morning as he was doing his devotions. And... Uh, it just hit me between the eyes like a two-by-four and stopped me in my tracks. And he, write, he wrote it in the first person about himself, but it deeply touched me too. And it was a message for me. And he wrote these words, at least some of these words. I'm faced by my impulse to prejudge and power up prematurely. So this other pastor and me were in a position of power with this third party. I'm faced by my impulse to prejudge and power up prematurely. I need to stop and listen carefully to what God is saying, to listen carefully about all the facts surrounding this situation. This takes self-control and trust that God will cause the truth to emerge. And then he ended with this, O oh Lord, guide me to see this situation with a pure and clear I, wow, I needed to hear that. And I was distracted doing the right thing, and this needs to get done right away, and we can't let this go, and I know the things that need to be done, at least I thought I did, but I missed first hearing from God and letting him be the functional Lord in the situation. Sometimes we get so distracted in life, we miss what God wants to do. And we think that his presence isn't near. We don't think we can feel him at work because we're distracted doing good things. Or maybe things that are not so good, and yet they somehow seem necessary. But these things could actually just come later. 
You know, I need to get the kid to football. I need to take the, the children to ballet lessons. I need to get the yard ready for winter. I, I, it's been more than nine minutes since I've updated my Facebook status, and everybody needs to know what I had for lunch. Um, it's pretty easy to get distracted in our world, often by things that are good things that need to be done. But in doing that, I miss God's work in my life and his presence. And then we blame it on him, but it's my deal. Another one, an obvious one, is a hardened heart. And our heart becomes hardened to the presence of God. And something has happened, and, and people who were tender in their relationship to God, who were very open to the things of God, begin to get cold and coarse in their relationship with Him. Let me turn to Matthew chapter 13 and read an example of this. Jesus is speaking, and He's quoting actually the prophet Isaiah, some text from the Old Testament, and He's teaching, and he's, He says this, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. In other words, the information is coming in. You hear the information, but you're not processing it appropriately. You're not really understanding it and getting. He says, you will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. You see what's happening, but you're not really taking in the real intent of it. For this people's heart have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and then I would heal them. And then I would heal them. And so the heart becomes calloused to the things of God. And this can look so different in different people's lives. It might be a person is here today, and they've prayed for something, and then God had the audacity to actually be God and answer in a way that they didn't expect or didn't want. And so they frown at God. And their heart starts to get a little cold to Him. And then they wonder why they can't sense His presence. Or maybe you're here and, and you took a step of faith and it didn't turn out the way you wanted or the way you thought you were supposed to. And you're thinking to yourself, how could I have screwed up hearing from God so badly? Or maybe I, maybe I should just not trust him so much in the future. And so the heart becomes calloused and cold to the things of God. Another obvious one is that there's ongoing, unrepentant sin in our life. Ongoing unrepentant sin in our life. Let's turn to Psalms. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 66, beginning in verse 16. Psalm 66, beginning in verse 16. And we'll read verses 16 to 20. And the psalmist writes this. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
but God has surely listened and heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. When there is ongoing, unrepentant sin, if I've cherished, he says in verse 18, if I cherished sin in my heart, it puts up a barrier in my relationship with God. It's like I'm, I've got these bricks in this mortar and I'm building this wall and it's getting wider, it's getting thicker, and it's getting higher. Now, what I'm not saying, so listen carefully to what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if you're a Christian here today, if you're born again, if you're a biblical believer and Jesus is the Savior and Lord of your life, what I'm not saying is that if you sin, you're no longer a Christian. Not saying that. But I am saying this. If we continue living with unrepentant sin in our life, at the very least... This will limit the potential of intimacy with God. And we'll have ourselves going, you know, I don't feel close to God anymore. I don't sense his presence. And it's because I'm cherishing sin. And in fact, at the very least, this will negatively affect my relationship with him. And it may well be that we have this issue over here and we're praying and saying, God, just like the psalmist says, God, I really need you to, to step into this and I need your help or I need your advice or I need your leading or whatever the case may be over here. And God is saying, I'm more interested in dealing with this in your life over here. And we go, no way, God, you're not going to touch that part of my life. That's off limits. And God says, we're not going to talk about this over here until we first talked about that. And we feel distant from God or don't sense his presence or his work in our life because we're cherishing sin in our life. Kind of like this. Um, if I was to do something to hurt Debbie, let's say I lied to her. Now, she doesn't know that I've lied to her. But I haven't repented of it. I haven't owned my stuff. Even though she doesn't know about it, are we still married? We absolutely are. Because we covenanted together between God, before God, and, and witnesses, and all that stuff. And we made an agreement that we would be married till death do us part. So we're still married, even though I've lied to her, and that's not out in the open. If I don't admit to this, if I don't apologize, if I don't repent, if I don't make restitution where it needs to be, uh, restitution needs to be made, it begins to put a wall up in the relationship. Because she senses I'm holding something back. I'm trying to sneak around and cover up my lie. And even though we're still married, the relationship is not all that God intends for it to be. Because I'm cherishing that lie in my life. Unrepentant sin builds a wall. Then sometimes there's just simply the silence of God haven't done anything wrong. Certainly God hasn't done anything wrong, but God has chosen to be silent. You can read the story of many characters in the book. You can read many autobiographies and biographies of very godly people who will talk about this. They will often call it the dark night of the soul. And it's not because they've done something wrong or that certainly that God has done anything wrong, but there seems to be a time where God is silent. 
If you read the book of Job, this is absolutely the case. It's like 50, 40 or 50 chapters long. I can't remember. It's 40 or 50. And, and Job is tested by the evil one. There's parameters and barriers put on what that test will look like by Almighty God. But he's tested. And his friends, three friends come along, and there's this long dialogue back and forth between Job and the, and the three friends, and they keep saying to him, there's got to be sin in your life, Job. This is why God is allowing this. This is why God seems silent, if you read the story. It seems like he's not engaged. And Job says, no, I've examined my heart. I've invited the Spirit of God to check me out, and there isn't sin in my life. And they keep saying, there has to be. Well, it turns out there really wasn't. And at the end of the book, we see God coming along and saying, it seems like I haven't been involved. I've been totally involved in your life. I've never abandoned you, Job. And there was some things that you need to hear about from the 30,000-foot level. And I want to give you, in a sense, a glimpse into God's broader perspective of what's going on. These are things you would never have been aware of, never come to grips with unless you've gone through this time of sort of the dark night of the soul. So he didn't do anything wrong, but God wanted to do something in his life only sort of predicated in that environment. Last reason I would address, and like I said earlier, um, maybe I haven't touched on the one that's exactly resonating in your life, but let me give you one more. You just don't know God. You might be here today, and you might know a little bit about him, but you don't really know him in a way where he's changed your life. We can read about this in John chapter 7, an illustration of this. John, again, fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 7. And it says this, in beginning in verse 28. It says... Um, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. In other words, you can tell by my accent, you know that I'm a guy that's from north of here. We're down here in the southern part of Israel, in center, middle part of Israel, in Jerusalem. I'm teaching in the temple. You can tell by my accent and some of my mannerisms uh, and the way I do life, that I'm up from the north country in the Galilee, from that Nazareth area. You know where I'm from. You know those things about me. Yes, you know me. You have some information about me. And you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, you've got some information about God, but you've never really surrendered to him. You've never really admitted the hopelessness of your situation in terms of your sin that is lying there unforgiven in your life, which is the case for every human being. You've never humbled yourself in light of that. You've never asked for forgiveness, understanding that's the only place that forgiveness is found. You've never surrendered and then turned your life over to me. So it might be that you're here. And the reason you don't feel close to God, maybe you've come to church all your life, but you've never really come to the place of surrender to Jesus. 
Today's the day you should do that. So we've talked a lot about feelings. And I want to just say something very clearly. You're not always going to feel God's presence in the way you think you might. Because it takes faith to believe in Him, even when you don't seemingly feel it. And the good news is that faith is pleasing to God. In fact, the Bible says it's impossible to, to please God without faith. Our relationship with Him begins with and is predicated on faith, not in our feelings. And again, feelings are not a bad thing. They can be a welcome thing. They can be a good thing. But they build on our faith, and they're not the basis for our faith. Everyone has to have faith. Even if you don't believe there's a God, you've got to be a person of faith. This one I'll just throw in for free. I was reading this this week, and it's by a guy named Glenn Schreibner. And he wrote this. Just, just chew on this one for a minute. I'm just going to say it. He said, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists, he's speaking about people that are atheists, people that are agnostics. So let me go back. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. Choose your miracle. So I'll just leave that one with you. I want to take a couple of minutes to just help build our faith, just as we wrap up here. When we seek God, we will find Him. When we seek God, we will find Him. Many places in Bible talk about this. Let me reference one, Jeremiah chapter 29, 13 and 14. It says, when we seek Him with all our heart, we will find Him. God delights in revealing Himself to us. Not just having information about him, but being in intimate, life-giving, life-changing relationship with him. And in this process, God, it's not a game of hide-and-seek. He's not sitting there saying, oh, you're getting hotter, you're getting hotter, you're getting colder, you're getting colder. He deeply desires this rich relationship that scripture talks about. And so he's more than open. Anyone that has any inclination towards him, he will respond to. He's drawing people all the time. We're told in the Bible that the Spirit of God points us to truth, points us to Jesus. He's pulling and tugging at our hearts all the time. And for those that are here that are part of the family of God, that know Jesus as Savior, one of the most straightforward ways to grow deeper in your relationship with God is to just read through your Bible. And as you're about to read it, to pray. There's three times in the book of Psalms that talk about this. And pray and just say, you know, Lord, uh, I don't want these just to be some words on the page. I don't want this to be some ritual that I'm going through. I want and I invite you to speak to me today. I'd really like to hear from you. I, I, I want the posture of my heart to be open. And so I don't want to just understand what this is saying. I want it to be applicable in my life. Would you, would you do that for me? And like I said, there's three different places in the Psalms, three different verses and, and, and play, sections where it's, we're encouraged to pray this way as we consider God's word. Now, somebody's here today and they say, well, Scott, it sounds like you've been doing this prayer stuff for a long time, and I'm not really sure how to pray. Um, let me just say this to you. Prayer is, 
is talking to God. You're just talking respectfully to him, but not unlike how you would talk with a close friend. And so tell him what you appreciate about him. Uh, again, respectfully, but tell him what you appreciate about him. Ask him about guidance on your day and your week. You know, I, I, I'm going to have to face this stuff. What do you think I should do about this, God? And so prayer can be just that simple and yet that profound. Ask him to fill you with your spirit so that you'll be empowered to live a holy life, to live a life that's pleasing to God, and to live a life of service. This is at the heart of being filled with the Spirit, to live a holy life and to live a life of using your spiritual gifts to live a life of service. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. When I begin seeking God like that, what happens? When I begin to worship Him, when I begin to praise Him, when I begin to thank Him for who He is and what He's done, actually what happens then when I sincerely do that is it begins to change my perspective. And what happens, in my experience, is the question begins to evolve. That question of, how come I can't seem to feel God's presence? How come I don't seem to sense His closeness? How come he seems distant to me? All of those ideas, when I seek him in the way I'm talking about, they all begin to evolve and change. And I begin to realize that more important than any of those things is that I want to know him. And I want him to know me. I want him to know my heart for him. I want him to know my adoration of him. I want him to know my worship. I want him to know that everything in my life is oriented towards glorifying him. I want him to know my humble obedience to him. Because at the end of the day, I begin to realize it's really not about me. It's all about him. And here's what's really interesting about that. When I begin to approach him and seek him that way, I begin to feel him and sense his presence much more intimately, much more closely. But whether I can feel him or not, I will worship him, I will long to know him, and the good news is he's not playing hide-and-seek with me, he's not saying, you're getting hotter, Scott, or you're getting colder. He's a God who loves me and wants me to know him.